Well, it is a joy to send so many children out again for their time of instruction. We'll remain here. And uh, if you would take your Bibles, open them up to that passage that Abe just read. We're in Titus chapter 1 this morning. Many of you know from uh, the opportunities that I have had to preach on Sunday evenings throughout the month that we've been working through Titus from the very first verse of chapter 1. We've been looking at that for a few months now. The last time we were together in that text, we looked at chapter 1, verse number 9. What we're going to do today is venture into verses 10 and following, but it's worth just considering what we've spent some time looking at in the past in verses 5 through 9. That was, uh, I said, a mini-series, which I entitled, God's Plan for God's Man. What we looked at in that text was a clear description given, by, uh, given to Titus from Paul about what kind of a man should be appointed to the ministry of elder in the churches on this small Greek island called Crete, which is in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. It still exists today. 2,000 years ago or so, Christianity took root on that small island, but by the time that Paul and Titus got to work there, Falsehood had begun to take root. As a consequence, the church was not really in great shape. And so Paul and Titus set to work on establishing godly leadership such that those churches would begin to flourish again and be that wonderful, vibrant testimony to Jesus Christ on that island. What we saw from verses 5 to 9 is that any man appointed to the office of elder must, not should be, but must be above reproach. That is, anyone within and without the church should be able to look at this man's life and declare no obvious legitimate charge against him. In modern terms, we would say that the way he uses his computer and searches the internet could be opened up before the world, and he could walk away with a clear conscience to say, I am pure before the Lord. The way that he treats his wife behind closed doors would be visible to all who knew him, and he could walk freely before men inside and outside the church to say, follow my example as I follow after Jesus Christ. He must be above reproach. According to what we studied before from those verses, the pastor's life must not be marked by arrogance or anger or addiction or abuse or an attraction to worldly pleasures. But rather, he must be committed to God's word as he himself gave himself to hospitality, to a love of good, to being self-controlled and walking uprightly before men, committed to growth in personal holiness, and given to a life of discipline. That should mark this man's character if he were to be appointed to lead the churches on Crete. As I said before, he is to be the model that those who are led in the church need to follow. We recognize as Christians, don't we, that we follow Jesus Christ first. But Jesus Christ has given us, as the chief shepherd, under shepherds that we're to follow as they follow after Christ. So these things, these commitments, this living above reproach is for all Christians, whether we're in the pulpit or sat in the pew. These are standards for us all to follow. And I think what we're going to see tonight in view of the ministry context that these elders would be appointed in, that there's a fairly urgent requirement for godly men to lead in the church. 
Titus was charged with appointing men who meet these non-negotiable moral qualifications. As we look at verses 10 to 14 in Titus chapter 1 this morning, my big desire for you all who are listening is to understand why it is that Paul gives these specific moral qualifications. The title of the sermon is Explaining God's Plan for God's Man. So I want us to walk away with an understanding of why these moral qualifications were set forth for those appointed to ministry. These are standards that apply today as they did 2,000 years ago on the island of Crete. I also want us to be keenly aware as we leave here this morning of the dangers of false teaching and what God's word says is necessary, especially for those of us in church leadership, when we see it in the ministry of the local church. I'm not suggesting that we breed a culture of playing whack-a-mole, waiting for someone to misspeak. We all have misstatements. We all have the requirement to grow in our knowledge of the word of God and communicate that clearly. So don't hear me trying to establish this culture of hyperjudgmentalism based on what we hear in the communication between us. But what I want us to be aware of is that false teaching within the church rips the church apart. It damages our testimony to the world, and we need to be on guard against it. There's clear direction in our text this morning. As a church, that applies to us all. As individuals, let me speak to the men who have wives and children for an example as all of you else listen, listen in. We could be thought of as pastors of the flocks that we tend at home. And so there's a word in us for today to be discerning, to take to heart the seriousness of false teaching that comes into our own homes, which could tear them apart. We want to be on guard against that, and this text applies to us as it applies to the whole church. Now, before I read the text for us before we explain it and apply it to ourselves. Let me say what a blessing it is to be a member of Emmanuel Baptist Church from the standpoint of many things, but especially the spiritual maturity and discernment that we have as a congregation. It is wonderful to consider the many godly men and women who know their Bibles. More importantly, they know the Lord of the Bible, and they're eager to see people follow him as they open up his word. But let us not take that for granted. Let us realize how the devil operates. Let us realize our fleshly tendencies, which want to steer us away from the truth, that we might disown the Lord at times and go off into falsehood. Let's not take for granted what we have. Let's pray to the Lord with fervency that he might protect what we have. Let me read verses 5 through 9, and we'll set in a context the verses that we'll study in verses 10 to 14. Titus chapter 1 verse 5 says, This is why I left you in Crete. So again, he is giving direction to Titus. This is why I left you here. This is your mission. Pay attention, Titus. So that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Who is he going to appoint? If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, 
but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. That's what we spent some months studying together. What follows at the beginning of verse number 10 is a word that points us to an explanation in the verses that follow for why he just gave the qualifications that he gave. Especially what he wrote in verse number 9 about the man appointed to the eldership being able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those, stand against those, correct those who contradict it. Verse 10 begins with the word for. He says, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. So at the beginning of that verse, we see that word for. And so we pay attention between the connection to what we read before and what's about to follow. We gain insight into verses 10 to 14, into the tough ministry environment that these newly appointed pastors would minister the gospel. These verses that we'll study this morning explain why Titus was to appoint godly men who could teach God's truth and stand opposed to those who actively and destructively contradict it. Now we'll see later on from our passage as we open up these verses together something of the spiritual and the social conditions that were evident on Crete at that time. Paul knew it. Titus knew it. They both knew it. Titus had to appoint leaders in that context. But Paul's major concern is not for the state of culture, as troubling as that would have been, but the state of the church and how the culture had infiltrated the Christians on Crete. In the absence of godly leaders, the godlessness of the Cretan culture had made its way into the church, and the church had begun to lose its testimony. You'll remember as we uh, repeated a few times before, that Titus, 2, chapter, uh, Titus chapter 2, verse number 10, says that we are to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. That is, we are to put on beautiful display as a woman would make herself up for uh, beauty such that the world could see what good work God has done in our midst as Christians. When the culture infiltrates the church, our testimony is lost. We put on the ugliness of the culture instead of the beauty of God's salvation. This is something that needs to be addressed, and it starts with being addressed by godly leaders in the church. Instead of the church being influenced by godly men and formed by God's truth, the church on Crete was being influenced by the liars and the falsehoods that existed in that culture. They were being led further away from Christ as opposed toward Jesus Christ. Look with me at verse number 10. Paul says that there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers. That word many. There's a multitude of these problematic people leading people astray. And with so many people in the church who were opposed to God's word, it's not hard to imagine a sense of urgency on Paul's part. Titus, get to work. This is why I appointed you to this task. Put these leaders into place. The witness of the church depends on it. They spent time together. Titus was left behind as Paul went on to other ministry tasks around that region to preach the gospel. 
These men that these elders would have to face, the many men were insubordinate. In the context of those leading people astray in the church, these insubordinate people would be men who rebel against the Lord of the church, Jesus Christ himself. These are men who rebel against the agenda that he gives to make a mature disciples. These are men who rebel against their calling to shepherd God's flock. They are disobedient. They are undisciplined. I'm hoping that as we walk through and look at the state of the church in Crete, that the qualifications for elders become really quite self-evident. They're disobedient and undisciplined. They prove themselves, as we'll see, not to be servants of God, but to be servants of self. They're not ranking themselves under the Lord of the church, submitting to him who intends to build his church through godly leaders who open up God's truth. One commentator, Denny Burke, says in his commentary, these false teachers are insubordinate to God's word, sorry, to God's authority because they do not submit to his word. In fact, he says, they distort and contradict it. Now consider this for a moment with me. What hope is there for a troubled church when those in charge of that church refuse to rank themselves under Jesus Christ, who gives direction and sets the agenda for that church? What hope is there for the transformation of a culture like that on Crete when those who are supposed to be that light on a hill are not following the directions of the Lord to be that light, to submit themselves to God's word? What hope is there when the men of God act independently of God's word? Men appointed by Titus would need to be ready to stand against the ungodliness on that island and lead people in submission to the Lord. Paul goes on and he says that these men were empty talkers. An empty talker is one whose words are vain or worthless. They're empty. They do nothing to build up. We might use the term windbag. These are a bunch of windbags. Everything that they say is just hot air. Nothing they say is good for anything. You may recall what Paul says to the Ephesians in verse 29 of chapter 4 of that letter. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So in contrast to that, uh, that godly edifying standard, these windbags, these empty talkers, We're doing nothing to build up the church. From the lips of a false teacher, that could be speculation based on the mishandling of God's word. There's nothing to build up the church. This wasn't just a problem in Crete, where Timothy was in Ephesus. He experienced the same. Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia... Remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons, these are false teachers, not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. What do these things do? They promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. 
promoting speculations instead of teaching toward greater sanctification is considered empty talk by Paul. Something to be avoided. Titus 1 verse 10 also says that those who were insubordinate were not only empty talkers, but they were deceivers. Their speech was imparting falsehood. It tended toward godlessness instead of the godliness that is associated with truth, even as Paul said in the opening of this letter. How are people made more holy? How do we grow in holiness in the church of Jesus Christ? Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, we're to be speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, Jesus Christ. We're to speak the truth in love. Jesus prayed for his disciples, didn't he? Sanctify them, make them more holy. Cause them to progress in godliness. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. God's word must be held out. As Paul, we've already said, introduced in this letter, chapter 1, verse 1, says that truth accords with or tends toward, leads to godliness in those who are under its ministry. And yet, Paul says here in Titus 1, verse number 10, that elders on Crete would be standing against, preaching the gospel in the midst of, those who were, many of those who were insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers. They were making claims to follow Christ, and yet leading people away from him. Make no mistake, brothers and sisters, that falsehood abounds within the world, does it not? It can infiltrate the church as well. We need to be on guard against that. That's hardly surprising when one of our enemy's great tactics is to deceive. Our Lord Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 44, that he, Satan, was a murderer from the beginning. Not only is he a murderer... But he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. This is our enemy. So deceptive is he that he will often disguise himself as an angel of light so that we would find liars in the church adorned as those who are seeming to tell the truth. He works his cunning deception to divide and distort, just as he did with Eve in the garden, to lead us astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Jesus Christ. Whenever we see and hear people in the world around us or in the church propagating anything other than truth, get this, we see them doing the work of the devil. Make no mistake that some in the church may be found to be doing just that. We need to be on guard against falsehood in the truth. That is why godly leaders are appointed on the island of Crete. That is why godly leadership is appointed today. Now, Paul mentions in verse 10 a specific group of troublers, a specific group of false teachers who have proved themselves to be particularly troublesome in that early church as he's given the reason for God's plan for God's man. He says in verse 10, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the uncircumcision party. This is a particular group of false teachers with ties to Judaism in that early church. 
John MacArthur says that they would attempt to obligate all believers to such things as Jewish legalism and imposing Old Testament ceremonial standards, no longer in effect because of the changing covenants, but they were imposing those things on the church in order to convince people, or at least try to convince people, that you must remain rightly related to God by doing these things. It's fascinating to me that even in the short time after the church was established, false teaching began to take root in the various congregations around Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. This is a theme that runs very commonly through the epistles in the New Testament as the apostles sought to keep the apostles' doctrine front and center. False teaching began to take root in the church of Jesus Christ, which sought to impose things from the old covenant onto the church that operates under the new covenant. We see within the first few years of the church that the Jerusalem council was established to put to death the notion that Gentiles had to keep the Old Testament law in order to rightly relate to God. According to Acts 15.5, those associated with the Pharisees were teaching that it was necessary to circumcise Gentile believers by ordering to, and ordering them to keep the law of Moses in order to be right with God. The council at Jerusalem clarified the issue and it instructed the Gentiles in how to live with freedom in Christ while trying to promote the unity between people of ethnic diversity as they all matured in Christ. But still, even after that council in the book of Acts, Paul and Peter are seeking to address the problem of false teachers. Still, Paul had to write to Galatia and Colossae to make clear that salvation and sanctification, our growth in godliness, was by God's grace through faith, not some strange, burdensome, joyless, destructive combination of gospel and law that they were being held to. Not surprisingly, in the absence of godly leadership in the church on Crete, the heretical Jewish influences had begun to take root and were destroying the testimony of the church in that place. Look with me at verse number 11 in Titus 1, and we'll seek to understand a little more of what the elders on Crete would be up against. Verse 11 says, They must be silenced. He's talking about these men of the circumcision party. Since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. In their deceit and rebellion against the Lord, those of the circumcision party were teaching what they ought not to teach. And we're not clear about the specific details. Scholars have really helped us in various commentaries to stitch together the New Testament evidence for what it is that was being taught by this man who ought not to be teaching that way. Uh, later on in this chapter, we see in verse 14 that there were Jewish myths and commands of people who turn away from the truth. Chapter 3, verse 9 mentions foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions. So there's division, there's quarreling about the law. These things were unprofitable and worthless. They don't build the church up. And so they needed to be spoken up against. When Paul writes to Timothy, he warns that he will face myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations, irreverent, silly myths, things that lead people into distraction as opposed to devotion to Jesus Christ. 
We could generalize the false teaching by pointing out how it mishandled and misapplied God's word while promoting controversy and dissension among those in the church who were exposed to it. Again, it does nothing to build the church up by speaking the truth in love, but tears it apart with confusion and distraction. George Knight is one helpful commentator, and he says uh, that this false teaching was concerned with Jewish myths and genealogies. You know, these things that we often skip over in the Old Testament. They were using these things, corrupting these things, not seeking the spiritual benefit that they offer. But it apparently set the tone for the way in which it handles the law. It is ascetic, but also rebellious and disobedient. It opposes the apostolic teaching and turns away from it, and it is motivated by gain. That word ascetic there means that they were imposing religion that was characterized by the practice of severe self-discipline. Imagine being told, in spite of the fact that God freely bestows on us the things that he has given us to enjoy, that you are not allowed to enjoy those things. That was a very real component of the joyless, destructive religion that was present in the early church. Now, the big takeaway for us as we consider these things is that false teachers ought not to be teaching those things. They needed to be addressed by the godly leaders. These men, the false teachers, were misusing the word of God. They were misinterpreting the word of God, and they were holding people captive by their errant conclusions into what it meant. These people were being led astray, held in bondage, as opposed to promoting the freedom that they have in Christ. Those appointed to lead on the churches of Crete, where such false teaching was so prevalent, would need to be well-versed in the truth of God's word and the freedoms that they had in the gospel, ready to open those up to, those, to the people in those ministries. Note what motivated the false teachers from verse number 11. He says that they were teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Now, when you do something for shameful gain, you're self-focused. You're looking to extract something out of someone at their expense to serve yourself while bringing shame and reproach upon yourself and perhaps, as you represent others, those people as well. So to teach for shameful gain in the church is to prosper wickedly at the expense of others, perhaps financially extracting money out of the people that you're trying to deceive, while bringing reproach upon Christ and his gospel. What kind of a reputation do you think might follow a man who peddles the name of Jesus Christ for his own benefit by extorting those who follow him? Picture yourself in the marketplace on Crete. And you see one of these false teachers gathering a crowd around him, and you've heard what he does. You've heard how, for shameful gain, he extorts those who he ministers to. Are you drawn to that person, or are you repulsed by it? What impact does that have on the testimony of the church to which that man is affiliated? People in the marketplace at Crete are running from him, not to him because of the shameful gain that he is pursuing. Let me ask you, is that man above reproach or not? 
Surely it's self-evident then from what we've studied before that men appointed to leadership in the church must be above reproach. Remember that Paul is directing Titus to put churches on Crete into order. And these are things that he has to keep in mind. False teaching from men whose only focus was to get rich as a result of their ministry of God's word needed to be addressed. We see clear direction from verse number 11 into the direction that these newly appointed elders should take. He says, they must be silenced. These false teachers must be silenced. This is a must. This is not a maybe. For the destructive influence that these false teachers had in the church, they must be silenced. Now I wonder what Paul meant by that. How do you silence false teachers? Our imaginations are running wild now, aren't they? I doubt that it means to forcefully restrain him and put some ancient style of duct tape over his mouth so that he can't speak. Though the impact of that needs to be the same, his mouth needs to be closed. What he speaks needs to be silenced. It would certainly involve shutting down access to their harmful teaching. What might that look like? A pastor might stand in his pulpit in in front of his church and warn people against specific false teachers and the things that they spew week after week. They're warning against the harm that these false teachers are bringing by what they teach. Certain books might be missing from the church library. Certain websites are going to be directed against. In public and in private, This godly leader is going to encourage people to stop listening to that false teacher over there. Stop reading this false teacher over here because of the toxic effects on our lives and on the witness of the local church. He might say these resources are not pointing you to the faithfully given promises of Jesus. Therefore, walk away from those people. Those are practical ways of silencing False teachers, aren't they? Another practical way is guarding access to the pulpit. No doubt you've heard uh, the um, accounts that Pastor Scott has given in his 20-something years of ministry, that certain men have come up to him and said, I have a special word from the Lord. Your church needs to hear what I have to say. And humbly but sternly, Pastor Scott guards the pulpit and says, Not today. That is not good for the health of my flock, and I have been charged by the Lord Jesus Christ to protect this flock he has given to me. So we have conversations in private. We guard the public pulpit in order to silence false teachers. Whatever the godly elders on Crete were to do to keep these false teachers from preaching, from propagating their lies, they were to do within the confines of Christian conduct. The reason for that, the reason that they needed to be silenced is given midway through verse 11. He says, they must be silenced since, here's the reason, they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Their ministry was upsetting whole families. Take note of that word upset or upsetting. They're causing division, they're causing a stir, they're dividing people, they're taking households, guarding or guiding them in contradiction to the word of God such that families are not being a witness for Christ, they're not functioning as they should within the church. When we use that term upsetting the apple cart, 
We're trying to describe someone who has done something to cause destruction. You picture the apple cart on its side where there's apples spread everywhere. The cart's no longer good for what it was intended because it needs to be put upright and repaired. Those apples need to be put back on it if it's to do what it's supposed to do. These teachers are upsetting whole families. The destruction is far worse than bruised apples. It's souls that could be led away from Christ toward hell if these false teachers are not silenced. While the ministry of God's word works generally to bind families together, to knit a congregation together around the truth that God has given. The false doctrine propagated by these liars in the church does nothing but deceive and drive division. Given what Paul will go on to say in Titus chapter 2 about how older men and older women, younger women and younger men and uh, bond servants and their masters should all relate to one another in their proper God-given roles and how they should function in the church, it's quite likely that specific families had been impacted when he says that they are upsetting whole families. He'll go on and he'll teach what needs to be taught in the church in Titus chapter 2. But from verse 11, see for now that letting false teachers' deception infiltrate the ranks of the church is destructive for individual families and the testimony of that congregation. Therefore, they must be silenced. Now in verses 10 and 11, Paul has been reminding Titus of the spiritual condition of the church on Crete. What he says next in verses 12 to 13 really undergirds what was going on in the church as Paul describes what was going on in the culture which has begun to infiltrate the church. He says, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Now Paul is quoting here an ancient statement from a 6th century B.C. Cretan philosopher by the name of Epimenides. Six centuries before Jesus Christ was born, this man made an assessment of the culture on Crete and said, Cretans, his own people, are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. They were known to be given to deceit. He said they were evil beasts, which captures how they lived, get this, not as image bearers of God, in true righteousness and holiness. But like unreasoning wild animals who do nothing but wrong in the sight of God. If that wasn't bad enough, he added that they were known to be lazy gluttons. Think of what that means. They wanted to do no fruitful work, but excelled in working hard to indulge themselves in their own fleshly appetites. They don't want to work hard, but they want to work hard at pleasing self. As Paul puts it in Philippians 3 verse 19, Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. This is the situation that Titus would find himself in. The group of men out of which Christians would shine 
and then go on to appoint elders in the church. Paul had seen this for himself as he ministered on Crete and he left Titus behind to set the churches into order. He validates from what he had seen on Crete that that testimony by Epimenides was true. Indeed, he would say, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. That's why Paul gave clear instruction to Titus and the men he would appoint as leaders. Look at what he says in verse 13. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Paul makes clear, Titus, these men are a danger to the church. These men indeed are a danger to the culture, but look at the church. Open up the trustworthy word as you have received it and push back on this falsehood. We saw that that word rebuke came up in verse number 9. It means to admonish an opponent sternly using argumentation to convince and refute. Keep in mind here that we're talking about ministry in the church. We're talking about eternal souls. Souls are at stake. And so there's a necessity on the part of an elder to stand in the gap between God and people who are being deceived and call out false teachers, rebuke false teachers. Severe rebuke is a must for men who are appointed to the leadership when it is necessary to address those false teachers. Note from verse 13 that this sharp rebuke is redemptive in nature. It's redemptive rebuke. Elders are not called to rebuke for the sake of wielding their own power in an abusive, domineering way. What do we say about the moral qualifications for an elder? That he must not be marked by abuse. So we can't say that he's to stand in the pulpit and abuse his spiritual power, making people to fall into line with his agenda. No, 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 that's not why we rebuke. This rebuke is redemptive in nature. He wants to see false teachers repent of and renounce their wicked and underhanded ways that they might come into submission to the Lord and guide people in that same direction. He wants to see the false teachers repent. He wants to see those that follow the false teachers repent. And so the rebuke has to be redemptive in nature. That they may be sound in the faith is the reason for the rebuke. Paul's desire in serving the Lord and his church is that those in positions of influence influence people with truth and Christ-likeness. We see something of what an unsound walk in the faith looks like from verse number 14. He says, Rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. So these false teachers had devoted themselves to Jewish myths. They were influencing people in an ungodly direction. See, if you would, the stark contrast between God's plan and God's man and these false teachers who needed to be rebuked. In contrast to the false teachers who learned from other false teachers and passed on what only tended toward destruction and speculation and distraction and godlessness, the men appointed to the eldership in the church would take what they've learned from faithful men, teach it to other faithful men who would teach others also. 
We see that in 1 Timothy 2, verse 2. One group was leading people in the way of Christ-likeness. One group needed to be rebuked because they were not doing that but the opposite. Now, as I wind this up, let me ask you, can you see now why it was so fruitful to go through this study on God's plan for God's man? Why Paul gave to Titus these non-negotiable moral qualifications for those in leadership in the church? Are these things a little more clear now as we understand the state of the church on Crete? Can you see how important it would be for men to be marked, not by arrogance or anger or addiction or abuse or an attraction to worldly treasures, but rather marked by a commitment to good, to hospitality, to self-control, to uprightness, to holiness and discipline? Can you see how that godliness would push back on the godlessness of that culture and lead people in the direction of Christ-likeness so that the church was a witness in the world? As we think that through, let's be reminded again of our calling to be holy people, to insist on godly leadership in the church and follow after them as they follow after Christ. Pray, even as we gather to pray in our time of prayer this morning, that God would protect the leadership of this church and those churches around us in the community such that men would be raised up, that men would continue to persevere in that ministry with a commitment to God's word and the godliness that it calls us to, that our witness in the community will be a vibrant testimony for Jesus Christ. Now here's another point of application to to consider. I see in our text this morning a call to discernment. How else will we discern and respond to the unhealthy influences to which we're exposed, especially those of our uh, culture, if we're not growing in our ability to discern truth from error, goodness from wickedness. We need to be growing in discernment, don't we? If we're not growing in our ability to practice that discernment, then what hope do we have of holding our leaders accountable and being that vibrant testimony that we're called to be? The principle of discernment is so important for us all, but I want to come back to what I said in my introduction about talking to the men, my, my fellow fathers, my fellow husbands, Let me ask you, as you influence your families, what you read, what you listen to, what you expose your family to is of utmost importance. As a pastor would guard the pulpit, so you must guard the walls of your houses and the minds of your wives and children such that they are being led in the direction of Christ-likeness, not away. So let me ask, what books are you reading? It better be the Bible, but what are you reading about the Bible? Who are you listening to? What are you doing to lead your own families to guard against the destructive, deceptive influences of our culture? Is the culture in which we live corrupting your Christianity? What ungodly influences do you need to silence with urgency this week to promote spiritual health, not only in yourself, but in those who are entrusted to your care? Now, finally, I'd like to make a point of application to those who might be listening 
who unfortunately have been ensnared by the deception of false teachers. I'm confident that if you're a member of Emmanuel Baptist Church, that those who preach and teach to you week in and week out are not included in this category of false teacher. But perhaps you're listening in. Perhaps you are here visiting. And you have been ensnared by those who have infiltrated the church who bring reproach upon Jesus Christ by what they teach. Please hear this as a compassionate plea to run from anyone leading you astray. To run toward those who would point you to Christ and the freedom that he offers from sin's penalty and power. Please hear this as a compassionate plea to run from anyone inside the church who promises you a life free of trouble, especially as they extract money from you as they make those empty promises. If we know our Bibles, we recognize even from Jesus himself that he promises that we will enter his kingdom, his eternal kingdom, through many trials and sufferings. As we endure those trials and sufferings and walk alongside him as he walks alongside us. We continue to believe that he died for our sins and rose again as we look forward to that eternal bliss that we will enjoy when we get to be with him. So anyone who tells you that you can give them money and prosper in this life as a result of what promises they hold out with their emptiness is lying to you. You need to run from them. If you have been deceived by those who rebel against the Lord, those empty talkers and deceivers who teach for shameful gain what they ought not to teach, then please hear the call today to turn from them and turn to the Lord. Lay up your treasures in heaven. Don't line the pockets of those who teach falsehood. Don't run after those who are leading you to hell as you pursue the things that they offer you from this world which are quickly passing away. You're called today to repent of your sins, believe that Jesus died and rose again to save you from God's coming judgment, and then pray for the Lord to move you to a congregation, to a church with a loving church family and godly leadership who will lead you in the direction of truth, who will push you in the direction of Jesus Christ, not pull you toward hell as they hold out empty promises. You need that kind of a spiritual leader who will hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught and is able to rebuke those who contradict what the word of God says you're to do. Let's pray and ask for God to help us apply these things to our lives as we leave here this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that you've given us such clear direction in your word regarding what kind of a man is to be appointed to leadership in your church. We're reminded this morning, Lord, of our great enemy, Satan. And we recognize afresh that he deceives even by manifesting himself as an angel of light to influence people away from Christ, not point people toward him. God, we're so thankful for the godly men and women in our midst that are acting against Satan, 
as they open up the word of God to us. I pray that the leadership of this church would continue in that good work, that you would give us grace to hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, to give instruction and sound doctrine and to rebuke those who come into our midst to contradict it. God, for those who are ensnared by such false teaching, give them grace. Lord, open their eyes to the error of how they might have been deceived. Move them to churches where they will be properly instructed. God, we're so thankful that as you have given clear direction to Titus through this letter, that you have given us something to work with today that we might know how to conduct ourselves in your household of faith. God, protect us. Cause us to persevere in the truth, that truth which accords with, it leads to godliness. God, we desire to be people of the book. We desire to be people who would shine as bright lights in our community where there are so many liars, deceivers, Lord, lazy gluttons and evil beasts. God, help us to come alongside these people with compassionate hearts, with the truth of your word, showing them the hope of the gospel and the transformation that you could bring in their lives as you brought that same transformation in our lives. But Lord, we recognize we can't do that if our testimony as a church is destroyed by falsehood that comes into our midst. God, I pray that you would help us to avoid that infection. God, we ask that you would help us to apply these things. Help us to be mindful of what we listen to. Help us to be mindful about what truth we are speaking to one another, even in conversations before and after church. Help us to be bold enough to... Help others in our midst walk away from these people who are deceiving by what, they re- by, by what they write, by what they say. God, we ask that you would help us to apply these things, that we would be a vibrant testimony in our community. Help us to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. We'll give you all the praise as you bring glory to yourself through us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.